Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Brad, one of the pastors here at First Baptist. And if you have an outline, you can pull that out in front of you. Uh, And as you are, let me ask you a question. How many of you were able to see the uh, Republican Party presidential debate on Thursday night? Show of hands. How many many saw that? Woo, little Donald Trump fireworks going on there, huh? Just just a little bit. Uh, A couple of uncomfortable moments. But, but, you know, I I thought about that and... um, in our country's history, there has been 57 presidential elections, and I am sure in each of those elections, there were times when it got a little sticky, when it got a little hairy, when it got a little uncomfortable. In fact, in the 1800 election, most of us will recognize the names John Adams and, Je- and Thomas Jefferson, but they threw barbs at each other through in newspapers that one supported one, one supported the other. It was said of Thomas Jefferson that he was going to murder, um, create a, a, a nation where murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest were openly taught and practiced. And then the other candidate was supported by another newspaper that said that Adams behaved neither like a man nor a woman, but instead possessed hideous hermethrop. Her- I can't even say the word. Okay, I won't even say the word. I'll just say it was not a compliment, okay? Let's say that. But you go through these war of words in in a country, and sometimes that can feel a little heavy on us and feel as though we're kind of pulled down. But all of the 57 elections that we have had have all been peaceful. Now, some would say around the Civil War time it was a little contemptuous, but, but all of them have generally been peaceful elections. You ask the question, why? Why has it been that way? Because of its design of the founding fathers. As they put things together, the participatory democracy that we have is the people being empowered. That's what democracy, democracy, the people empowered. And in the 239 some odd years that we've had here as a country, the 57 presidential elections, the process has worked. But hear this, it will not work. The danger is, is if we stop using this power of the people, we will lose the power of the people. That's why it's kind of sad to hear that out of 31 democracies surveyed across the world, we are 29th, 29th lowest in voter turnouts. And on a presidential election year, 20% even less than that. It's telling me that our country is not getting this. We're taking this for granted in the power of the people being able to vote and to rise up and be empowered by our Constitution. Because hear me, if our people do not participate actively in our government, our government will eventually fall. Will eventually fall as a government. In fact, someone once said there can be no daily democracy without daily citizenship and the things that we're supposed to do. And and as I watch those presidential debates and as I think about our country and where we're at, and we'll see more come up, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and all that over the next year, year and a half or so, I thought, you know, the same is really true as we talk about the involvement of the people with Christianity. The same is very much true within our church. Our faith is a race. Our faith is a fight to win. It's a daily commitment to Christ our King. And if we're not advancing, we're retreating. If we're not involved, if we're not a part of it, we're going to lose the power that God set up within His servants. We just sang that song, withholding nothing, 
Use me. Use me in whatever way you want me to be used. And God's plan for accomplishing his purpose has always been to involve his people. It has always been to empower the people, to empower his church to do the work that he calls us to do. We just finished a couple of weeks on Moses and how God called him. So don't sit back, get involved. And you think about Noah, you think about the life of Moses, you think about the life of David, to, 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 uh, to the 12 disciples, to Paul. God has always chosen his people to accomplish his reconciling purpose, to bring others into a relationship or back into a relationship with him. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.18 calls us ministers of reconciliation. And that is not just me, that is not just the people up here on staff, that is not just our diaconate board, that's not even the people who are running those tables out there. Scripture calls all of us those ministers of reconciliation. We're all to be involved in that. Any football fan knows that August is kind of the time when training camp begins. In fact, I think there's the first preseason football game on tonight, but training camp began here at the end of July, early August. And I'm reminded of what legendary coach Vince Lombardi did at the beginning of every training camp. He was the coach of the Green Bay Packers. Every training camp, he would step up in front of all of his team that had gathered there, all 80 of them, and said to the 15-year veterans as well as to the first-year rookies, Remember what he said? He would hold up a football and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. And he would start with that. Every year, this is a football. This is where we begin. And then he'd break down some philosophy behind tackling and blocking and then then get to the game plan over time. And so as our fall programs begin... Um, in a week and a half here, I think it's a great time to remind us some of the fundamentals as well as our vision statement of what we do and why we do it. And so First Baptist, this is not a football. This is what? This is the Bible. This is God's word. And from it, we glean everything we do. You know, Pastor Derek talked about how giving is that act of worship. That comes out of here. Everything you live, how you live is your act of worship. Not just when you come here on Sunday mornings and sing a few songs, but everything you do is an act of worship. That comes from here. Our vision statement and the reason we have our vision statement comes from here as well, creating us to be the ministers of reconciliation. And some of you know the vision statement. Let me share it with you, helping people take their next step and knowing Jesus and make Making him what? Making him known. In fact, let me try this if I could. Let, let me divide that bit into four categories and let me just have you repeat them so that you can remember this. Let's have this whole section here be the helping people section, okay? Do you want to say that? Can you, can you say that? That's downstairs and upstairs as well. Say it. Helping people. Eh, that was about a C minus, okay? So I know this group will do better, but let's try this one again, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Helping people. Oh, now you got it, all right? Take their next step. Repeat it. You guys are already there. In uh, let me think. Helping people take their next step in knowing Jesus. Repeat it. And making Him known. You guys can do better. All right. Okay. Okay. In fact, let me try it again. All right. And making Him known. All right. You got it. You ready? Okay. Here's why we do what we do here at First Baptists. Helping people take their next step. That's why we do what we do. 
And we divide those into a no, grow, serve, and share philosophy. That we are all about knowing Jesus on a deeper level. We're all about growing in our faith on that level. We're all about sharing and serving in those ways. And so for us to just be reminded, okay, we're getting back to the basics. And today I really want to hit specifically on that serve area. And so here's the question I have for you. What steps have you taken in 2015 to grow in your faith? To know Jesus on a deeper level. To serve him. And to share your faith. What steps have you taken? See, I'm just not going to just leave that one. and I, I'm going I'm to hit down on that one. Okay? What steps have you taken this year? We're almost two-thirds of the way done with the year. When August, end of August. What steps have you taken? In fact, why don't you take a moment, look at your neighbor and say, I think he's talking to you, okay? Go ahead and say that. I, I think he's talking to you. All right, look back up here. I want you to look back at your neighbor and say, nope, he's talking to me, okay? All right? Because I am talking to you. I'm talking to you about what steps have we taken. I mean, this is what we're passionate about here at First Baptist. We want to create opportunities for you to know Jesus on a deeper level. That's why we have these worship services. That's why we have this time where, where we worship and come into his presence. That's why we encourage you, don't just go home and never pick up God's word again. Read it throughout the week. Come to know him better. That's why we encourage you to get into some sort of Sunday school class, some sort of community group, some sort of discipleship group, so you are growing in your faith. That's why why we encourage you to do things that help you share your faith. And today, specifically, I want to talk about how you can serve. It's why we have what we have out here in the Welcome Center. That's not just a display. It's not just to pat ourselves on the back, but it's to educate us all what we do around here. Because maybe if you don't serve in some areas, it's good for you to see that there are other areas that we have that you could help other people or point them to getting help. But also, those things don't just happen on their own. They happen because God's people step in and say, I'll be involved. I'll be a part of the process. I will be that minister of reconciliation that 2 Corinthians talks about. And just like in our democracy that is built upon the involvement of the people, the church will also not accomplish its purpose for reaching the city for Jesus without the involvement of God's people. That's you. It's just the way God has designed it. For us to be a great church, for us to be healthy, growing Christians, we have to be involved in growing these areas because if we're not advancing, we are retreating. Please hear me on that. It's kind of like a bicycle as you pedal it uphill. Either you are going uphill or you are going downhill, right? You're riding a bike uphill. There's no in-between. There's no stalling. There's no just stopping. You're either going up or you're going back. So what are you doing? I pray I pray that you have been taking steps in this past year and in the last third of the year as well. You know, there's an old saying that says, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it what? Can't make it drink. I like to say you can't push a wet noodle. You can. Have you ever tried it? You can push a nice dry one, right? But go home and boil some noodles and try and push them across your counter. It doesn't work. And I'm hoping and praying you are not the wet noodle. 
who just comes and sits. You know, the New Testament writers were writing to a culture, I believe, of, of, of kind of wet noodles. And let me tell you why I say that. They were dealing with a culture in the Greek world where leisure and pleasure were the order of the day. And I'm thankful for uh, Ray Vanderlaan, who um, did some video series with Focus on the Family, who, who I, I gleaned some of this information from. Great, great reminders that really today we are m- not much different than the world the New Testament writers were writing into. Those who are seeking pleasure, those who are seeking leisure as their top regards. You only have to go to other countries in this world to find out how blessed we are here in America. And I was talking to some friends who um, came from Russia. And they would say that um, uh, the refrigeration process that we have, the food that we can store on our shelves, just is not even present in Russia. In fact, the, the women would have to go three times a day to the stores to get food because they did not have any refrigeration to be able to store the food. Bread was off the charts cost-wise. We go by, we pick up a loaf of bread, no problem for us. But it was crazy how much bread was, just the fundamental things that we assume are easy to gather here in America. My wife and I led a mission trip back in 2008. We were in Africa um, to see the people in Africa, how they would carry water, sometimes on their head or across poles on their back with large waters on both sides, buckets of waters, for miles upon miles upon miles, just to do some basic basic things, and to walk hour upon hour upon hour just to get to church. And we can't get to church on time, live five minutes away. Oh, he's talking to you, isn't he? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You know who you are, right? I think about Haiti, a mission trip that my wife and I, again, were able to to lead and go on this last week, and and just the difference in culture, and how... how blessed we are, although we really fall into an area of, of leisure and pleasure in many ways as well. Just like the New Testament days, just like the New Testament culture that the New Testament writers were now re, uh, writing into. And so, and so the New Testament writers, they had a challenge. How do you motivate people who are in this culture of leisure and pleasure to think beyond themselves? And to desire the things of God in a passionate way. They had a very interesting technique. Let me share it with you. If you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is walking with his disciples. And he comes to a region called Caesarea Philippi. And in Mark 8 verse 27... Jesus enters this area, again, in the Greek culture, in the Greek world, filled with leisure and pleasure, probably filled amongst a bunch of of statues and uh, artistic kind of things that are going on. And, and And he stops after looking at all these areas, maybe even a pagan temple, and says in verse 27, who do people say that I am? So Jesus is asking his disciples this question. Who do people say that I am? And there's a very interesting answer in verse 28. It says, and he asked them, uh, excuse me, um, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others 
one of the prophets? Interesting answers. Because all of these responses were people of passion. John the Baptist, being kind of the wild man from the wilderness. Elijah and all that he did. The prophets were seen as people of passion. So for Jesus to be mistaken for a person of passion means that he might have been pretty passionate at times. We see when he was maybe a little quieter. We see when he had great passion, certainly clearing out the temple. When he spoke, maybe he had a a lot of passion as well. But I want to focus just for a second on the second answer that they gave, and that was Elijah. Because many of you might know him as an Old Testament prophet. I, I shared his story, I think it was in a message back in, in um, January. We talked about Mount Carmel and the things that were going on there. So for us, he's an Old Testament prophet. Maybe he didn't know quite the passion that he had. But to a Jew, the answer Elijah really meant something because they knew him as the prototype, the pattern for a rabbi with passion. They knew him as having an intense commitment at all costs. And so Elijah was the one who went up on Mount Carmel and called fire down and said, who is God? Because whoever is God, you serve him. And the pagan gods, they did not get their God to respond. And Elijah said, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's doing something else. Maybe he's just not listening to you. And then called upon the one true God and fire just flew down from heaven. And so then Elijah, after this happens, goes and he runs down the mountain and he oversees the punishment for all these people with the agreement that they had. Then he runs back up and he prays passionately at the top of the mountain. And then he runs 20 miles ahead of a chariot as he sprints to the next town. In athletic terms, he left it all out on the field. There it was. Boom, I'm laying it all out here. So if, for Jesus, if Jesus was confused with Elijah, you must say that he had to have had some passion as well. And his disciples knew that they needed to have a kind of a passion as well. So now, how do you communicate that passion to a Greek world where leisure and pleasure are so predominant? Where they are of the highest degrees, leisure and pleasure, much like it is here in the United States in 2015. We, we've, we've gotten spoiled in many, way, in many ways. Well, the Jewish disciples would have known about this arena that I'm going to put up here on the screen. It's um, Aphrodisias. They would have known about this area. In fact, there were a couple of other arenas that archaeologists have discovered like this one. There's one in Caesarea, and then there's one in Synthopolis where Jesus would have passed going to Jerusalem. So I'm sure Jesus knew about that as well. But let's talk about the New Testament writers and how it applies to them. This arena in uh, Aphrodisias was a Greek arena known to the disciples of the original disciples of Jesus. And it seated something like uh, 30 to 40,000 people around the arena. There were these 24 rows of seats that would go up. Um, there were entrances, or, um, entrances at both ends of the arena. And it had, there's one that you can see right there. That's one of the entrances. Uh, and then there was a royal box. I think this next picture is going to show that. So here's another one of the entrances. And here is the royal box that was also in the arena. And the emperor would be the one who would come in and would sit in that place. And you could just, if you want to kind of imagine this, you, you can hear the roar of the crowd. 
as the, as the athletes would enter in and the emperor would enter in as well. And, and now the disciples that Jesus drew upon knew of Elijah and his passion needing to be passionate as well. And, and you know, they would have also have known that in the Old Testament days and even in their day, that to be someone of the word meant that you didn't just pick up the word and read a little bit from here or there and read a five-minute devotional and call that good. They knew that to really measure up, they had to not only read the scriptures, but they had to memorize the scriptures. In fact, to be the lead of the elite, you would memorize half of the scriptures all the way even through the book of Psalm. Memorized. Makes us feel a little guilty for not even being able to pick up the word and read it for five minutes, doesn't it? For not rearranging our schedule, perhaps, so that we could be involved in some sort of a community group. That kind of involvement, that kind of passion was already a, a given for people of the Word. And yet, in the days of the Jewish, in the, in, the, in the Greek culture now here, that we see the New Testament written into, it was different. But Jesus' potential disciples, who were Jewish, knew of that commitment, but this was the Greek world. So how do you communicate to them? How do you motivate them? Well, the New Testament writers drew upon the passion of athletics and of the athletic games. And so the point of sport was not just the thrill of competition or a spectacle for the spectators, but it was actually in this day and age to declare the gods and which gods were the greatest gods. So when the emperors were seen as gods, they used it to elevate their status of their pagan religion. And so it's really kind of amazing that the New Testament writers would pick up on this and would say, let's see, we're in this Greek world, let's draw the analogy from the sports and athletic dimension that they are in, and let's draw it over to now who is the real king of all, and who is the real understanding of who the real God is. Because Paul now goes and says... Rather than run for your emperor to show that he is God or he is the ruler or that he is the Lord, you run for Jesus because he is the one true God. He is the one true Lord. And so look at the imagery here. And all of you have probably seen this if you've been in church for over a number of months of time. But look at the verses up on the screen. Galatians 5, 7. Paul says, you are running well. Uh, I think we backed that up there. Uh, one verse or jump ahead one verse. Go ahead, one more. One more. My bad. All right. <laughs> the imagery I want to share with you is, is, is a little bit like we see at the Olympic Games. And that's what the PowerPoint was trying to get me back on track with. When all the parade of athletes come walking in, this is Argentina, usually uh, at the front because they're alphabetical A. Greece is usually the first one because um, of the original uh, Greek um, Olympics that were done um, way back when the Olympics began. And so uh, just to catch you up on how this might look in the days of the Greeks... Um, first century, uh, the emperor would come in, he would lead the procession, and then he would take his godlike status, and I guess for some reason he would also bring in his little cabbage patch doll right down here. Um, not exactly sure why, but Nero had that. Um, and the people would stand and they would cheer for the emperor. 
And then he would take his royal box and then he would read decrees and he would say, I decree this from the great divine. And then they would tell the people what they did right and what they did wrong and uh, what they can expect from their punishments or their rewards. Because after all, like I said, they were seen as the gods. And then he'd read a scroll. He would open it up. And he would say, now let the games begin. Much like we see that in the Olympiad again. Let the games begin. And then the event that was greater than any other was the chariot race. And how the people would would race their chariots and go by Caesar, who was kind of like God to them. And, And they would go by and they would pray by and maybe even wave palm branches at the emperor perhaps um, uh, declaring that, that they were running for him or they were running for their pagan God to show that their pagan God was the true God. And so Paul understands this context. And as he understood this context, that's what he now translates into saying, don't run for the pagan gods. Don't run for the emperor, Nero or Caesar. Run for Jesus. Look what he says in Galatians 5, 7. Now we're back on track with the verse there. You were running well. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see, you see the terminology there, the athletic terminology? Go to 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. That's arena language that he's using there. He says, I have finished the race. That's Olympic kind of language that he's using in this place as well. He said, I have kept the faith. So for Paul, the walk with Jesus was like an Olympic event. And he's saying, you're the athletes. What God are you running for? Don't just sit back with your leisure and pleasure society. You are in the race. And whoever wins this race is going to show that their God is God. He says, you know the one true God. So run the race. He says, you are called to run, not just for your life, but to show the world that Jesus is king. Run for him. Run the race. And so perhaps every Sunday, we come into a place like this. And we are the procession. And then we go out into the world and we run the race for our king. I mean, look at the imagery again. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us, what's the next word there? Let us what? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see that imagery there? He's relating this to the world that they knew of, and in this metaphor, we are God's Olympians. And you got in because God chose you. That's a little bit different in the analogy. But when you get in, run. Run the race as God has called you to run. Could you imagine being at the starting line, set to go, ready, and the gun goes off to go, and you just stand there, picking your nose. (laughs) The writer says, run. Run the race. One of my favorite verses, one of my life verses, is 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Does not say you have to win. Does not say you have to cross the finish line first. It simply says, run as though you are going for the prize. But run. Because the Christian life is not to be lived in a halfway mentality. And how dare we even dabble in discipleship if we're not to get fully involved and jump in and run the race like we're meant to run the race. And so you are in the arena. Your life is showing who is king. Run, run, and run well for the king. And at the end, have nothing left. Leave it all out on the track. Leave it all out on the field. Because the radical message of Christianity is that cowering in a world where we seek pleasure and good things for ourselves, it's run and run with the passion that Elijah had in his life. But there's an interesting third element in this uh, analogy that's before us. We see that there's the emperor, we, we see that there's the athletes, but then there's a third part of this, and that is that there was also a crowd of people. So go back to the Hebrews 12.1 verse. Look at what it says. It says, Therefore, since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Isn't that interesting? He uses this race analogy, and he starts it off with the word therefore. And you know our rule around here at First Baptist. You want to find out what the therefore is there for, right? So what is the therefore there for? It's there... Because chapter 11 ties right into where Paul is going with this. you remember what happened in chapter 11? Anybody, what, what, what's chapter 11 about? It's, yeah, it's the faith chapter. It's the hall of faith. It's the heroes of the faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is coming off this huge chapter of talking about all these other people who have ran the race. And then he says, now that you are a part of that great cloud of witnesses. Perhaps they are the ones standing and cheering as you're now running that race. Perhaps now you see Elijah up in the stands, passionate Elijah, who is standing and cheering you on, saying, come on, you can do this. Run, run. Maybe you see Moses up there saying, come. Come on, run the race. You see Rahab. Rahab is talked about in the Hall of Faith. Rahab the prostitute, though who followed God, she's mentioned in there, and she's there. Maybe David and Bathsheba are there up in the stands saying, you can do this. Maybe there's Jacob um, in his messed up life, but he has finished his race as well, and he is now saying, come on, you can do this. Maybe you got Peter up there who's saying, make it, make this happen, and they are saying, come on, you can do this. Don't quit. Run, train, grow, serve. Don't quit. Run the race. And, and, And each of them, would say we weren't perfect. There were times when we fell flat on our face. There were times when we tripped up, but we got back up and we ran. We ran. Look at that verse again. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, maybe in your life you have a grandmother who's a part of that cloud of witnesses. Maybe a grandfather. Maybe it's a spouse who has passed on. 
Maybe it's a brother or a sister who prayed for you for so long. Maybe it's a great-grandmother that you related to. I don't know who your great cloud of witnesses are. But if you want to take this all the way back, you can take it back to the biblical characters, the biblical stories and lives that were lived out, who have finished their race, and now are encouraging you to, to do the same. And I can just imagine even like a Moses saying, yep, I had my excuses, I tried to get off, please don't do the same. He's saying, come on now, come on, that's not good enough, you run, you run. And so let me just encourage you, First Baptist, today is a great day to run. And I pray that you will get involved. You have another flyer in your bulletin. It says Next Step Sunday on it. There's a front, there's a back, there's an inside the Welcome Center, there's an outside on the walkway. My prayer is that you will go and you will look and you will pray and say, God, where do you want me to be involved? Now, some of you are already very much involved. That's great. I would encourage you, though, to go around and look at the booths because there will be places and things that you will see that you can encourage other people to do and be involved in. But if you're not involved, if you're not serving, you need to. It's not about your leisure. It's not about your pleasure. The race is called, when you signed up, when you gave your life to Christ, he said, you're going to now run this race for me, and you're going to run it well. I pray you will take steps. Because how you run it shows the world who your God is. Just as the Greeks were running for their God, winning the race and showing their, their God was true God, Paul says, no, we run for the true God. And may your life reflect that as you run, and as you serve. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to run in your name. You have called us to run. You've called us to run well. So Lord, even if we feel like we're not fast enough, if we don't have enough endurance to run... That's not the case. You, you have said, run as though you are going to win the race. And so, God, every day we wake up, and every day we start out, and every day we do it again for you, not for us, but for you. We run to show the world that you are our king. God, thank you so much for First Baptist and for the way that they are involved in so many ways. And even as we look at our country and we think about the democracy that we have and the involvement of the people in our government, Lord, I pray that we would be involved. But God, we look at our church. And our church would not be what it is without people stepping up and being involved. Lord, you've called us all to run. We're all those ministers of reconciliation, bringing people back into a relationship with you. And so today, may we run well as we're empowered by you, because we do it for you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.